How are you guys doing? Good to be with you. Glad you're here. Uh, let's open up our Bibles for the last time together uh, to the book of Daniel. Uh, we are covering a lot of ground today. We are going to be looking at the last three chapters in the book of Daniel because all three chapters create this one final vision in this book. And today as we come to the end, uh, fittingly, we are being given a vision of the end. Um, Daniel is interesting here because when you read this book, if you don't think about it this way, but it's true, he's kind of ruining the end of the story for us. You know, he, he's ruining the end of not just a story here in the book, but really the end of the world. Um, I don't know if you've ever ruined the end for somebody. Um, I think it was back in September. Uh, we had our last church picnic in the uh, Family Life Center, and I walked over to Josh Matthews and Joe Rodman, and without even thinking, I said, hey, sorry about your Seahawks, right? Not even realizing that they were taping the game, or not taping, but recording the game, uh, waiting till after the picnic was over so they go home and watch the game, and I ruined it. I just could tell from the moment I said those words out of my mouth, just the you know, devastation, really, on their faces. And uh, I still feel horrible. I still will never be able to live that down. I've learned a lesson, right, to be a little more tight-lipped about football scores here at this time that we now worship. But maybe you're like, I hate sports. I've never ruined the end of a sporting event for somebody because I don't even watch them. But you've probably maybe experienced that with maybe watching a television series or some show on Netflix or a movie or something. You're watching it and somebody ruins the ending for you, right? So what do you do? Well, maybe you're like, well, I'm not even going to watch that anymore. But most of us would probably continue to watch the game, right? We would continue to watch the story unfold before our eyes. And even though we know the ending, we still feel the conflict. We still feel the tension within the plot line. Maybe as we're watching our favorite team, as they're falling behind, we're feeling frustrated, right? Or as they're making progress and taking the lead, we feel a little bit more hopeful. But we have to always remind ourselves, hey, I know how this thing unfolds, right? I know how this unfolds. Right, And that's the exact way that life is, actually, believe it or not. Because here we are, again, at the end of Daniel. And the end of Daniel talks about the end of this world. And in doing so, it teaches us how to live. And what it's showing us is that what, it, what we hope for is what we will end up living for. That's what the last three chapters essentially are showing us. And I hope you'll see that tonight. But it's showing us that what you hope for, you will end up living for. And so we can faithfully live at the margins as God's people, and we could do so until the end, but only as we have our hopes reshaped and reset upon what they should be. So the way that I want to walk through this is we're going to do like basically one major point for each chapter. And I want to kind of turn these points into a benediction of sorts. I thought this was fitting as we end the book to kind of give us a a benediction of sorts or a blessing. And so this is what I want us to see. It's that this, may we be people who have an overwhelming vision of our God. You see that in chapter 10. Who become disenchanted with the powers of this world. We see that in that middle prophecy section. And lastly, may we be people who live for what we hope for. And may what we hope for be the kingdom of God. So I I hope this will be life-giving for us as we walk through this together. So let's look at this first vision, really, that we should be people. May we be people who are overwhelmed by our vision 
of God. Now, I'm not going to read all the texts as we go along, too much of your relief, I'm sure, but uh, we'll be bouncing around here or there and we'll read different sections of it. But let's begin by looking at chapter 10, and I'm going to read the first few verses here for us. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. Remember, that's his Babylonian name. Right? And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. If you remember two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 9 and we saw this great prayer for Daniel as he anticipated the end of this exile period for God's people. And so as he prayed and as all of us pray, right, we often wonder after we've prayed, will anything come of our prayers? Right? Well, that's what we're seeing happening here. It's true. Things are ha- taking shape in light of his prayers. Verse 1 is describing all this. After the 70 years of exile in, in Babylon, King Cyrus has sent out a decree that all the Israelites can now go home. Right, that's what it's being said here. You can read about that more in Ezra chapter 1 if you want to see what was actually said. So Israel is told they can go home. And then in verses 2 through 3, we see Daniel for a period of three weeks mourning and abstaining from normal practices from things that are God's good gifts, basically. And then we find him standing by a river, and as he's standing by this river, he sees this overwhelming vision. Let's look at that in verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, which is a colorless object. His face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Just want to ma- can, can you imagine having seen this? Like, don't rush past. I know the descriptions are weird, but can you imagine having seen this? A voice like the multitude people. And I, Daniel alone saw this vision for the men who were with me did not see the vision but a great trembling fell upon them and they fled and hid themselves so I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me my radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength then I heard the sound of his words and as I heard the sound of his words I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground So we're told here that only Daniel is able to see this vision. The buddies that are with him, they don't see it. And what he sees causes him to lose all strength. He loses all strength. I mean, verse 8 tells you this twice. There was no strength left in me, and I retained no strength. If you look down in verse 16, he says, Behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. This is believed to be the same person he's just seeing. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, so because of the vision pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. Verse 17, How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. This is an overwhelming vision. Who is this guy? Right? Who is this person that he's seeing? Well, we're not told exactly who this is. There are popular ideas that 
Maybe this is a messenger or an angel from God, someone like a Gabriel or a Michael sent from God. But other people think this is actually the pre-incarnate Christ. Both, you could say, are fair readings of this passage, but I think we really do need to consider how glorious this vision is and the effect that it actually has on Daniel in light of the fact that he has seen other angels. We know that he's seen other angels, and so because of how he's seen other angels and how he's responded to them, we might lean towards this actually being the appearance of a reincarnate Christ. Furthermore, just consider how he addresses the figure in terms of reverence, and this is not found in any other interactions that he's had with angels. He calls him my Lord three times in verse 16, 17, 19. But more importantly, guys, than the vision itself, we are supposed to focus our attention on the impression that this vision actually creates. I mean, even if this is not God himself, Daniel's vision is still essentially a vision of God in nature because it communicated to Daniel a sense of the gloriousness and powerfulness of God. I mean, just look at the condition that he's left in. He can't breathe. There's no strength in him, right? But look what God does in light of the fact that in seeing this vision of God, essentially, and losing all strength, what does God do? He touches him in verse 18, and he strengthens him. And then he says, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. So he's told to be strong and of good courage, and as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So look at the pattern of chapter 10. Daniel sees the glorious vision of God. He loses all strength. It's overwhelming. But then God strengthens him and tells him to be strong. Right. So before God tells him anything else in these, this final section of the whole book, right, he is weakened and then strengthened. I, I don't care who you are. Okay? God's glory is so overwhelming that if you were to see it, it will make you feel weak. But only so that God could strengthen you. Only so God could strengthen you. If you take anything from chapter 10, take it from this, that what we see with our eyes, you guys, is not all there is. I mean, Daniel was living in the real world, right? With real people, with a real job, doing real things. And God unveils to him his glory right? What we see with our eyes is not all there is. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Truman Show. It's a film back in 1998. I will spoil the ending for you. Sorry, you've had like 30 years to see it or something. I'm bad at math. I don't know how long of a time that is, but it's a long time, right? You've missed your chance, okay? But without going into too much detail, there is a character named Truman Burbank, and he lives in this dome, in this bubble. It's basically a, a TV set his whole life, he thinks he's living in reality, but everybody he's, he knows is an actor. His whole life is a set, basically, and everybody is watching his life as if it were a TV show. And at one point, he becomes a little bit tipped off that, like, maybe there's something up here. And he begins to wonder, is this real? Is all this real? And so he gets into a boat and takes off across this lake and ends up smashing his boat into the edge of the TV set. And he notices a staircase there that has a sign above it that says exit. 
And so he walks up the stairs and through that door into real life. He experiences real life from that point forward. He looks up and he sees real stars. And what he thought was real his whole life was actually not real. It was real, but it wasn't real. Right? He's let in on where real life is found. And so, guys, you and I, we don't live in a dome, right? You're not on the Truman Show, right? We, we live in reality, right? but we often don't see the reality behind the reality that's actually here. Maybe you haven't or you won't see a vision like this, but the glory of God is overwhelmingly real. It is overwhelmingly real. And so I think it's interesting that in this final vision, it begins with the glory of God and a reliance upon him to actually provide strength for the journey ahead. And so do you live for the, with the vision of the glory of God in your life? Is he what is all-consuming? Would you say God is over, the overwhelming reality in your life? Is that, is that what you would say? I mean, when was the last time you would even say, I, I've just lingered in the clouds of God's glory? You just sat with him and meditated on all the reality of who he is. When's the last time that you would even be able to say something like that? As when you are captivated by the glory of God, you will become disenchanted with the world and those who seem to have power in this world because that's exactly where this passage leads next. We see from chapter 11, verse 2, all the way down to chapter 12 through verse 4, we see this whole section shift from audio or video to audio. Right? So now he begins just to hear from this person all these things. We move from vision to prophecy. And this prophecy basically is a survey of history that is densely packed together. So if you love history, you would love this chapter. Most of you are going to be very disinterested in a chapter like this. But it is history. But it's history specifically as it impacts God's people. This is not the history of the world. This is the history of the world as it impacts God's people, Israel. So I'm not going to walk through all these verses and try to figure out who everyone is. A good study Bible, like the ESV study Bible, will help you with something like that. But what we are reading here, essentially, is a history of Middle Eastern politics after Alexander the Great. So we've seen that it's Babylon, and then Babylon gives way to Persia, and then Persia gives way to Greece, we're told, in in verse 2 there of chapter 11. And then verse 3 says, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. That's a reference to Alexander the Great. And then we'll see that Greece gives way to Rome. We've seen this pattern throughout the book of Daniel as he relates to these different visions and what he's seeing. And basically, if you read all of chapter 11, there's going to be all these different scandals, these real historical scandals, and all these things that you can actually look up and find in history. And it culminates in this horrible king of the north. This is a real bad guy, and his name is Antiochus Epiphanes, we learn from history. If you look over in verse 31 of this chapter, just notice how this is an epitome example of how all these kings and kingdoms have functioned. It says, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So there's going to be a a king of the north. He's going to come and take over Jerusalem and stop what the priests are doing at the temple. Then look at verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. 
So this is referring to a period in about the 160s BC. That's what this is talking about. This is the Maccabean period, if you've ever heard of that in history. So this guy makes it illegal to be a practicing Jew in Jerusalem. That's what he ends up doing, and that's what these verses are talking about. So if you were caught practicing your Jewish faith, even in Jerusalem, you'd be thrown into prison. And this guy, Antiochus, Epiphanes, he sets up a huge idol of Zeus in the temple. And then the most horrible part of the story is that Antiochus would bring up one Jewish person a day and force them to bow down to Zeus. And if they didn't, he would mutilate or torture them in the public temple courts so that more Jewish people would give in. I mean, you could read about this whole story and account in the first and second Maccabees. That's what's being described here. It's horrible. And so what we're meant to see here in this chapter is two things. I think, first of all, we see God's people, again, in the future, beyond Daniel's life, experiencing devastating suffering. They experienced this as they were exiled into Babylon. And so Daniel, they're getting out of that period. They're going back home, and he's seeing a picture that this is going to continue. God's people will still experience suffering. It'll continue. But secondly, you're meant to see this. The failure that is marked by those who are the kings and kingdoms of this world. There's a lot of buts in this chapter, okay? I mean, just just glance with me here. Verse 4, we see a, a kingdom rise, but what does it say? But his kingdom shall be broken and divided. Verse 6, a kingdom rises, but she will not hold on to the strength of her arm, but she will be given over. Verse 9, another kingdom rises, but he shall be returned to his land. Verse 11, we have this rising again, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. Verse 12, another kingdom rises, but he will not remain strong. Verse 14, another one rises, violent ones among your own people will assert themselves to fulfill a vision, but they will fail. Verse 17, another one rises, but the daughter of women, he will give to him to destroy it, but it will not stand and will not prove to his advantage. Verse 18, another one rises, but a commander shall be put an end to his arrogance. Verse 19, another one rises, but he shall stumble and fall and will not be found. Verse 20, another one rises, but within a few days he will be broken and not in anger or battle. Verse 25, another one rises, but... The king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. Verse 27, the two kings shall be bent on doing evil and speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. So there's a constant rising and falling in this passage. There is this seen fragility of the kingdoms of this world. They can seem so powerful in the moment, so powerful, but no one lasts. So this chapter alone helps us to become disenchanted with the world and the power that people seem to hold. Let me just ask you here at this point, right? How do you feel if when you walk through or read a section like this in the Bible? How does this make you feel? Do you feel stressed out? When you read about all this stuff that's happened in history, people rising and falling, people suffering, do you feel stressed? Right? Well, do you feel worried? I would imagine that you don't, right? I don't. Why? 
Because it's already happened. It's already happened. We don't worry about things that have already happened, especially not even in our lifetime, not on this side of the world. Right? We don't worry about those kinds of things. And so I think it's actually very interesting to, to pause and to consider how we think of this. We read a, a chapter like this, and it's just history to us. We can look back on these horrific events, and we don't feel the stress. We don't feel the anxiety, the, the kinds of things that you would feel if you were living in the midst of them, or even that you would feel if you're Daniel, concerned about God's people, and you're being told what's going to be coming next. Right? It's pretty powerful, actually, to look back at history and not feel the stress. Right? Daniel looked ahead and felt it, but there's no power of that over us. We see the end of it. Yet now, we stand here today, we look around our world, we consider the future, right? And we do feel the stress. We do feel the stress. But interestingly, though, one day, someone is going to look back on our generation Or maybe you'll just stand on the eternal horizon of life and you'll look at this moment and you won't feel any stress. Right? Isn't this just the pattern of the world, we would say? That's how it goes. Do you see these kings and kingdoms fill out this pattern in human history that's taking place even today? Kings and kingdoms giving into evil, trying to achieve things on their own. I mean, when you have sinful, broken humans get together, right, in power, they don't use their power to serve others, but to use others. Right? They don't use their power to bless people or love people, but to destroy people. That's what we see as the pattern of human history. This is the pattern, and we live in it. Which is why verse 36 and following then shouldn't alarm us or surprise us. If you look at verse 36 down to the end of the chapter, this is where it shifts. This seems to be talking about someone else now. Because what is recorded here actually doesn't match up very perfectly to this king of the north, this Antiochus Epiphanes that we just looked at. What we have here in our text is the beginning of this blurring between Antiochus and someone very much like him, but worse. And that's how all these kings seem to be. Right, this king is called a king of the last times. It's subtle, but if you look at verse 36 to the end, these are often thought to be referring to the Antichrist because verse 35 says what? Until the time of the end. And then in verse 40 says, at the time of the end. And in 12.1 it says, at that time shall arise. So this is talking about something at the end end. Right? And there's trouble coming. It's not just in the past anymore. So we, we read a book like this, we're like, oh no, this is not past history. We look ahead now. You can begin to feel the stress a little bit. So we go, okay, what hope is there then? That, that's where this vision begins to turn a corner in verse 45 and following because we have two more buts. We have two more buts. If you love grammar, this is your day, right? This is great. Look, see, this horrible king of the north, this antichrist figure, what does it say? He shall, in verse 45, pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet, right, that's a but, he shall come to his end with none to help him. That's great news, right? 
Hooray, is that our great hope? You know that this person will too fall just like everybody else? Well, that is good news, but that isn't the ultimate thing that produces hope for God's people, for you and me in this world. Right? Because as we've seen, if one horrible king or ruler or kingdom or nation falls, another one's just going to pick up the baton. So we need something else to actually fix this cyclical problem and pattern in the world. And that's where you get to chapter 12, verse 1. What does it say? It says that there will be trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. That's pretty bad. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Guys, there's no more buts after this. The, the pattern, the cycle is broken on that day. See, God will not tolerate what we are doing to his world and to each other. He won't tolerate it. There will come an end. I mean, he loves this place, right? It's his world, and he made it, and we've ruined it with our sin beginning with Adam and Eve. A world that before that moment, he has declared good and perfect. And so the good news is that God loves the world and he will deliver those whose names are written in the book. Well, what book? Well, if you read Revelation, Revelation calls this book the Lamb's Book of Life. So it's not surprising then that after this mentioning of this book, we see this deliverance that is going to break the cycle. And so we have the clearest Old Testament reference to the resurrection. Do you see it? And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Right? This resurrection is going to come. It's going to happen. We will be raised and there will be a final judgment. God is going to carry out perfect and complete and fair justice. Is this good news for you? If you're resistant towards this idea, I mean, just think about the desire that you have for justice. It's like wired in you. I don't know if you've ever like seen a crime before or maybe just, you know, hopefully like watched something, you know, that had a crime in it, maybe didn't see it firsthand, that would be a horrible experience. But if you saw a crime, maybe even a, a murder of some kind, and the perpetrator was never caught, or maybe they stood trial and they were never given justice for what they did. But that bothers you, doesn't it? Like, you want justice. Like, I know I do. I mean, my wife and I just finished watching a show where this person, like, commits murder and stands trial and gets off scot-free even though everybody knows they did it. And you watch it and it just tears at you because you're like, that can't happen. This person should get justice. Or if you just think about a ruler of a nation who does horrible things and lives a long life and eventually dies and never gets justice for what they've done. It bothers you, right? You want justice. But the issue is that all of us haven't received justice for what we've done. It's it's easier to see sinners right over across the room from you or just outside these walls and go, yeah, they deserve justice. But it's really hard to see this sinner and the justice that I deserve. 
And here in the end, guys, this is what we're promised, that we will all get justice. Right? We will all get justice, complete justice. Someone will pay. And that's the good news. The gospel is not advice to go and do better. Right? The gospel is news that Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one with overwhelming glory, that if you were to see him in all of his glory, you would lose all the strength and ability to even breathe, has taken on flesh. Are you about to celebrate that at Christmas? And he always lived and did what was right and good. The one with all power, the one who is the first and the last, said to be the beginning and the end. He has paid for our sin. He has received justice that should have been for us. That's why when we get to the book of the Bible, we see John's interaction with the resurrected Jesus in the beginning of the book of Revelation. And the vision that he has is so similar to what Daniel sees in chapter 10. You see this same visual. You see Jesus, he's clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest, and he has the burnished bronze too and all this kind of stuff. He has this sharp two-edged sword, and his face is like the sun, shining in full strength. And what does John say? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Right, there's a picture here of the afterlife, life that is to come for all people. And your only hope of deliverance on that day is by placing your faith in him today, in the one who died for you, for your sin that deserved justice. And he's the one who slept in the dust for three days, but he rose from the dust to resurrection life with the keys of death and Hades in his hands. He breaks the cycle through his resurrection and the cycle will one day be ultimately finished. That pattern will be broken on that day of judgment. The famous atheist Stephen Hawking once said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. It's a famous quote. I think many people think that way. But I think for those who would maybe even nod their heads to that, deep down, when you think about or face death, you still wonder, don't you? Maybe even you fear, maybe even hope that there is more. That if you see these vicious cycles in this world, And you're like, man, will God right all these wrongs if there even is a God? Is there anything beyond the grave? Maybe you hope that this life isn't all there is, that death isn't the end but the beginning. Do you believe that? I mean, even if you're a Christian right now, and I I, I give you a Stephen Hawking quote, you know intellectually, I reject that idea. Right? You would reject it because you're like, well, I know what I'm supposed to believe. Right? But do you live as if you actually believe 
what Stephen Hawking is saying. That if there's no life after this one, right, if you live that way, do you? If you do, then yeah, you will never place your hope in that. You'll place your hope in this life, won't you? That's an important question because the last thing we're seeing here is that we live for what we hope for, right? Look at verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked. We have another vision. And behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream, one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was at above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th day. But go on your way, Till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. See, the question here, not even spoken of by Daniel, but by these figures he sees on this river, is how long? How long? Remember, Daniel is hoping to go back to Jerusalem. This exile period is over, but deliverance is way out. There's a lot of suffering to still to come. So how long? The answer, time, times, and half a time. That's helpful, right? What does Daniel say? Verse 8, best verse in the book. I heard, but I did not understand, right? And here's our problem. We get to this final vision of the man in linen now hovering above the river, and we have the same question, how long? And Daniel isn't told. We see these numbers here at the end, so there's a sense of time in verse 11, verse 12, we see all these days, but if you just add up those days, we're way past those days. So what do we conclude from all these numbers? That there is a definite period in the mind of God until the end. That's what we're supposed to know from here, this. Ultimately, we aren't certain of the time. It doesn't say, blessed is the one who knows the exact time. He doesn't say, go and tell everyone when it's going to happen. We aren't to know the when, but the what. What is the what? The blessed are those who wait. They wait. Now, if you're waiting for something, that means you haven't received what you're hoping in yet, right? I mean, that's how waiting works. You haven't gotten to the front of the line. See, Christians are marked by our waiting, aren't we? Verse 8, what does Daniel say after he's confused? Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? What's going to happen? That's a great question. I have that question. I want to know. What's the answer? Go your way. Like this whole book, you guys, has been driving us here. It's to ask this question, how long, O Lord, only to be met with basically God saying, wrong question. The question is, how then shall we live in light of the hope of the end? So he says what? Go your way. It comes up again in verse 13. 
go your way. This phrase, when it's used in the Old Testament in this sort of context, doesn't mean get going, Daniel. Is that what that means? It literally means someone who's on a public path, whose goals and purposes are revealed by the road he takes. Right? So you take a path, people look at you on that path, and they go, oh, the path you took, that tells me about the purposes and goals that you have in this life. That's what's revealing. Oh, you're on that road. Your goal and purpose must be that. Right? Well, what road would people in this world say you're on? What would people say you're on? Right? What should mark us on this road to life? What should be the thing that people look at in our lives and they're like, oh, you're on that road. You're hoping for that end. What is it? Verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise, they'll understand. We're seeing clearly what the purpose of Daniel is is being shown here, that we are to keep the faith, you guys, especially since we will be severely tempted to give up our faith in the face of opposition in this world. If you've read Daniel, you know that your suffering in this world is not accidental and it's not meaningless at all. But it serves this positive goal of purifying us, of cleansing us, of refining us as God's people. I mean, this, this word here, many shall purify themselves, it's a reflexive word. It literally means they shall show themselves to be pure. They, they shall be made spotless and refined. This is that great image of refinement that you see when people heat up in the furnace gold. Right? It separates the impurities from the gold. Right? It just, it's so you can make a greater discernment about what is the gold and distinguish it from the impurities. It's through the furnace that this actually happens. So what is this talking about? This is saying the road that you and I walk down that shows the purpose for which we are headed is to be marked by a holy life, meaning a life that is set apart, right? That reflects the character of God. That is a life that says, I'm not living for this world. I'm living for my hope in the next one. So if you live for what you hope for and you hope for heaven, we live for that now, right? We walk that path. I love this quote from J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. He should be on the screen for you. He says, even if you could enter heaven without holiness, what would you do? And what joy would you feel there? What holy man or woman of God would you sit down with for fellowship? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their character is not your character. What they love, you do not love. If you dislike a holy God now who would say to us, purify yourself, walk this road of suffering, why would you want to be with him forever? If, you wor- if your worship does not capture your attention at present, what makes you think it will thrill you in some heavenly future? If ungodliness is your delight here on earth, what will please you in heaven where all is clean, where all is pure, you would not be happy there if you are not holy here. This is the go-your-way stuff, right? My hope is in heaven. My hope is in the final but taking place and rising from the dust and 
Jesus separating the sheep from the goats and me being found in that book. I'm living, I'm walking that path. Well, if I'm walking that path and the call is to purify myself, then and I want to be happy there, then I'm going to be holy here. You see? See, we all want to know the answer to how long, but there is a more important question, and that is what am I doing to prepare? Right? Am I living in such a way now that it actually makes sense of where I say I'm putting my hope in? Am I living with the end in mind? Yes, something changed, you guys, for the whole world on Easter morning. But the kingdom of God broke through. Eternal life offered. New creation. And it all arrived in the person of Jesus. Our future, you guys, is as certain as him walking out of the tomb. If that happened, and you know it, and you've placed your faith in him, the end is spoiled. You could still watch the game, but you know how this thing ends, right? To be honest, there are a lot of days that are really hard, aren't there? There are a lot of hard days. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of hard days, even recently in my life, really hard days. And reading these chapters reveals to me that I think what makes them even harder is the conviction that I live too many days without the overwhelming vision of the glory of God before my heart. If I'm not captured by the glory of God, then the days are going to be really hard. So guys, I've been asking myself all week, I want to ask you, if you were standing on the eternal edge, the eternal horizon of life, you're about to go into the dust, knowing you're going to rise again. And you were standing there, and you could look back on this moment of your life. You're not going to be stressed, right? So what would you live for today? What would you live for? A few years ago, I, I, this might be lame to you, but I actually wrote down three goals for my life as I was assessing the things I was hoping for. And I realized when I place myself on that eternal edge of the horizon of life, and I look back and I go, what should I be living for? I came up with these three goals, okay? I'm warning you, they are not impressive, okay? I said, when I look back, and I'm standing on that edge. I want to love Jesus way more on that day than I do today. Number two, I want my wife and my kids to still like me. Right? Low bar, I know. But I imagine that would mean I love them well. And number three, I would have wanted to be found faithful. that I could stand before the resurrected king. And he'd say, well done. Maybe nothing really cool came in my life, but I sowed the seeds. I walked the path. I did what I was asked of me. And I was faithful. Right? That's not a tantalizing vision of goals of your life, right? 
But when you place yourself on that edge, what are you going to do? What do you think when you stand there? What do you think? Because I trust that along the way, through this book of Daniel, congratulations, you made it, right? Proud of you. I trust that along the way, it's been pretty self-evident to you why we should study a book like this and how it's even relevant for our lives. I mean, this book has helped us to see that we as God's people in our place and time, like exiled Israelites in Daniel, we too, like they were called, should live to seek the welfare of our city, to pray to the Lord on its behalf, to be great citizens in this world, right? And as we've walked that path, we've seen that faithfulness at the margins. It's not marked by retreating, is it? It's not marked by isolating. It's not marked by building bigger bunkers and separating ourselves from our neighbors and those that we are called to love who need Christ. And faithfulness is also, we've seen this, it's not marked by assimilation, is it? I mean, just going along with the current flow of culture, just whatever the society around you says you should do. No, we've seen, I mean, if you look at the history of chapter 11 alone, that society is going to tell you a lot of things that are opposed to God. The kingdoms of this world are opposed to God. So we are consistently confronted in our day and age, like every day and age, with things that we should reject, things that we should resist from our culture. But instead, we've sought to see that faithfulness at the margins is marked by godly resolve and loving engagement. Not withdraw, not assimilate. Godly resolve and loving engagement. Essentially, we are clearly told in Daniel and in the rest of Scripture to be people who are in this world but not of this world. Why? Because we are on a different path, right? Your people say, I'm not compromising, but I want to love you and tell you about Christ because I know a day is coming. It's a day I've placed my hope in, and I want you to as well. You guys, God's word is telling us that we are going to be fine. We're going to be just fine. We're going to be more than fine because Jesus wins. He wins. So may we be people who live with an overwhelming vision of God and his glory. May we be people who are disenchanted with the powers of this world. And may we then be people who live for our hope in our great God. In that day that will be consummated when you will rise from the dust. Let's all stand together as we pray. God, would you be merciful and gracious to us tonight and help us just open wide, unveil our hearts to behold your glory, the magnitude of who you are. I know for many of us, we probably feel like we're living in the the Truman Show. Lord, just help us to see what is real in this world. Help us to see your glory, your power. Help us to put our great confidence in the end that you've written. Lord, eternity feels like a long way off, but help us to walk that path together, Lord, in this world, bearing witness to your greatness, Lord, and your character. Lord, I pray that GBC as a church, and every church in this Portland metro area, Lord, 
that we would be marked by people who are in this world that you've made, that you love, that you're redeeming. We'd be people in this world, but not of it, Lord. That's a hard line to walk. We need wisdom to do that. So Lord, would you guide us in the days ahead? Speak to us tonight, Lord. Bring about any repentance that's needed in our hearts, any conviction, Lord, that you're wanting to do in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.